Hey everybody, welcome. Today is May the 10th, Monday, 2021. This is our first non-sermon podcast episode. We have not done this before. Uh, my name is Philip Coleman. I'm the lead pastor and one of the elders at True North in Anchorage. And I'll tell you, if you're looking for the sermon audio from yesterday, May the 9th, you should be able to find that in the same feed that you're using to access this audio. So for instance, if you're listening on our podcast stream, just scroll down to the most previous podcast. The title of the sermon from Sunday is Deconstruction Zone, and we were in the first half uh, to one-third of Exodus chapter 6. If you're on our website and you're listening to this audio, you probably found it on the messages page of the website, and you should be able to find the message called Deconstruction Zone from Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, in the sermon series page for Exodus, Blood, and Water. My goal today is to wrap up some of the uh, ideas, the content of Exodus chapter 6 from yesterday. We did not have enough time to get into the second half of the chapter. and We do need to start with chapter 7 this coming Sunday, May 16th. So this is a great way for us to fill that gap in. Uh, I am recording coming to you from the basement of the First Baptist Church of Anchorage. I'm in the choir robe storage room, wrapped up in choir robes so that we don't get audio feedback. So you can just visualize me here. Uh, kind of in the dark, just talking to this camera. But I'm talking to you. Wherever you are listening to this, I'm doing this for you. Um, I want to quickly recap a couple of announcements that we spoke about yesterday at church. If you missed these, uh, I know that I announced at least one date wrong yesterday, so I want to clarify that. Um, first of all, for students, anybody involved in True North Student Ministry, the deadline to sign up for camp is this coming Saturday, May 15th. You can do that at lavernegriffincamp.com. Contact Josh Mangum with questions. We have a covenant member meeting coming up on Thursday, May 13th. That's going to be at 6 p.m., also in the basement of the First Baptist Church of Anchorage in the Fellowship Hall. Uh, we'll have food. We also have child care. And one clarification I want to make, I did not mention this yesterday, is we will allow anybody, even if you're not a member, to attend that meeting. Voting is restricted to those who are covenant members, uh, but anybody can attend. Even if it's the first time you visited our church was this previous Sunday, you're listening to this now, we'd love to have you sit in and hear about some of the things that are going on in the life of our church. And then finally, we are having a volunteer appreciation day. Anybody who volunteers in any area of life at True North Church is invited to come with us to the Alaska Wildlife Conservation Center. We'll be headed down there. We're going to meet at the gate at 10 a.m. on July 17th. That is a Saturday. So uh, we'll cover admission. You guys can take care of your own food, your own transportation. Could be fun to jump in and carpool, maybe have moms ride in one car with no kids and have the dads ride with the cars to give moms a break. You guys figure it out. You'll do what you want. Um, but we'll be excited to see you at 10. We're going to try to hang around until about noon. You can stay longer if you'd like to. If you need to leave earlier than that, that's also fine. So just a few things for you to know. A quick review of yesterday's sermon so that you know what we're coming off of and what we're headed into today. We were in Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and we worked through the first 13 verses in three sort of subsets. We broke it into three pieces, and we, we made these three points. We, we saw these exemplified in Scripture, and then we tried to apply them and understand them in our own lives. First, we said that God is tender when we resent him. So we dealt with the reality of resenting God, especially on a day like Mother's Day. What are some of the things that we think God might owe us that he has not given us yet? Or what are some things that we used to have that we feel that God has either taken or has allowed something else in life to take from us? And what do we do when we resent God? How does he respond to that? Well, we saw in his example, he is tender. He's personal and kind. He shares his own name with Moses. And then he encourages Moses to share that name with Israel, who are to some degree, deconstructing. That was the second point, starting in verse 5, that God is near to us in our deconstruction. We see that God does not lecture or lambast his people. He does not attack them. He does not attempt to correct their poor theology or communicate what awful things will happen to them. 
if they embrace their culture instead of him, he is patient, he's kind, he stays near to them and he's ready and we have an example in that as well. When people around us deconstruct their Christianity, the best thing we can do is stay near to them. We will speak up when we have opportunities but we ought not attempt to create arguments that we can try to win. We ought not to attack them in their weakness. We ought not to belittle them for having questions and doubts. Often that season of deconstruction can birth real fruitful Christianity on the other side. A desire to take ownership of one's faith instead of just taking rote or regurgitated answers from Sunday school teachers or preachers like me. Uh, we find that as people deconstruct, they gain the ability to know Jesus personally where they may have only been acquainted with Christianity as a system before that. And then finally, God is convincing. Excuse me, God is not convincing. He is evident. I apologize. God is not convincing. He does not argue with his people he is evident. He acts. He shows himself to be powerful and capable and able. And so coming off of those three points, today we jump in at verse 14. For the sake of clarity and continuity, I'm going to start reading in verse 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. So if you have a copy of God's word, you can follow along. Otherwise, tune in and I'll read it to you. Here we go. Moses said to the Lord, this is verse 12, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and he gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, specifically to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, verse 14 jumps in with a pretty hard turn. This is a change of pace. This is actually a change of genre in the scripture. We go from reading narrative, sort of a past tense account of what happened to who, when, where, and why, and this is now a genealogy feels sort of random. When we get to the end, I'll explain to you my perspective on why it's included in Exodus chapter 6. Verse 14 says this, These are the heads of their, who is the their, Moses and Aaron, of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, who are the firstborn of Israel, and their names were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of the tribe of Reuben. Verse 15, The sons of Simeon are Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Yakin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. And these are the clans of Simeon. Verse 16. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of Levi were 137 years. Verse 17. These are the sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shemai, by their clans. These are the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel, and the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari are Mali and Mushi, and these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. Verse 21. The sons of Izar are Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel are Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron, Moses' brother, took as his wife Elisheba, who is the daughter of Amminadab and who is also the sister of Nashon. And she bore to Aaron sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah are Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. And these are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, who was Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. Verse 26. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. 
this Moses and this Aaron. One day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. Verse 30, But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So immediately what you probably noticed, if you're like me, is there's a little bit of repetition happening here. If we look back at verse 14, where this begins, the previous two verses are an echo. Verses 12 and 13 are an echo of verses 28, 29, and 30. Moses, who wrote down the book of Exodus, felt that it was necessary to repeat himself. Why? Well, because I think that everything between those verses, everything that happens before verse 26 but after verse 13, functions as what we call a parenthetical thought. It's something that if we were to write in English would probably exist between two sets of parentheses. And so what Moses is doing is he understands that he's somewhat derailing the natural train of thought of the narrative structure of Exodus chapter 6 by inserting this genealogy beginning in verse 14. So in order to get us back on track, once the genealogy has accomplished its objective, in verse 26, Moses clarifies why it was important to him to write this down. He says, this was the Aaron and the Moses, as if there had been any question about whether or not the Aaron and Moses we've been interacting with for the first six chapters of Exodus are the same Aaron and Moses that God's people are supposed to be following. And then he clarifies again that that's exactly what he means in verse 27. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh. It was this Moses. It was this Aaron. So of all those names, just to quickly help you grab on to what's happening in the genealogy itself, the parenthetical thought between verses 13 and 26, there's really only four that we necessarily care about, maybe five, okay? First is Israel. In verse 14, we see that Reuben was the firstborn of Israel. If you know the book of Genesis very well, you'll remember that Israel is a man whose name used to be Jacob. Jacob's father was Isaac. Isaac's father was Abraham. Abraham is the man in the early part of Genesis to whom God gives what we call the Abrahamic covenant, that God would use Abraham's descendants to reconcile the world to himself, that he would give them a people, he would turn them into a nation, he would give them a place to live, that they would move into the land of Canaan permanently, and that they would have a purpose, that their purpose among the nations would be to show all the people of the earth how good life can be if you know God personally and you're willing to follow him in his ways. So Israel, in verse 14, is our connection back to what we call the patriarchs. Reuben is the firstborn son of Israel. Next is another brother. And then finally, in verse 16, we read about Levi. And Levi is one of Israel, formerly known as Jacob, one of his 12 sons. And the family of Levi, his sons, his descendants, will become one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then among those tribes, each of those 12 tribes is further broken up into clans. This is why the genealogy uses the language of clans associated with the names of the sons of each of these tribal leaders. After the exodus happens, God gives Israel some governing laws. You guys are familiar with the idea of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And he also sets the tribe of Levi aside, this is Exodus chapter 18, to be his priests. When we talked about Moses as the prototype priest in the middle of chapter 2 of Exodus, we said that a priest is really an advocate, an intercessor. And that will be the role of all of the Levite men all the way until Jesus arrives on the scene in Matthew chapter 1. So we have Israel. He's the first link in the family tree chain. Then we have Levi, one of his sons. One of Levi's sons, according to verses 16 and 18, is a man named Kohath. Kohath then has a son named Amram. Amram marries a woman named Jochebed, and she has three children, Miriam, 
the sister of Moses who appears in chapter one of the book, who follows the baby's basket along the uh, shore of the Nile, maybe chapter two, I apologize. We have Moses, the middle son, and uh, well, the middle child, oldest son, and then we have Aaron, the youngest child and the younger brother. So we see now that Moses, who is claiming to speak for God, and Aaron, who is somewhat Moses' prophet, to use God's words, and is able to do signs and wonders to show that the God who Moses represents is legitimate, that they have legitimacy as well, that the point of this genealogy is to authenticate these two men. So before we jump too much further into that, I just want to back up one step, and I want to talk to you about why we even have genealogies in the Bible. God uses genealogies in the Bible a lot more times than just here in Exodus chapter 6. The book of Genesis alone includes in chapter 5 a genealogy of Adam's descendants, in chapter 10 a list of the nations that populate the Middle East and what people those nations came from, chapters 35 and 36 list out the descendants of Israel and Esau, and even the New Testament opens with the genealogies that explain how Jesus descended from Israel in order to fulfill God's Old Testament covenants. Now, if you're like me, trying to read through the family tree of Moses and Aaron feels like reading every other genealogy in the Bible. It isn't very interesting. And frankly, it's full of names that you can't pronounce. I'll just say to you, there is grace for those of us who volunteer to read scripture at Life Group and then find out that we are stuck with a list of names and places we can't pronounce, okay? Our gut reaction when we come across these verses in our own Bible reading, when we read the Bible individually, is to skim over them at best or maybe not even read them at all. Fortunately, or I would say maybe unfortunately, depending on your attitude, in the New Testament, one of Paul's letters to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that all of Scripture has been breathed out by God and is therefore profitable. It's useful to us. Useful for teaching us, for reproving us, for correcting us, and in order to train us in how to be right, how to do righteousness, so that we, the people of God, may be complete and be equipped for every good work that God has in store for us. So I have a few thoughts for you about what makes a genealogy, like Exodus chapter 6, verses 14 through 25, profitable. First, I think, is it demonstrates the importance of individuals to God. Looking back at these verses, God could have said early on, Levi had three sons, but you really only need to know about Kohath. But he takes the time and expends the energy to name each of these people. And this helps me take seriously the idea that our God is very personal. God knew each of these people for their entire life. To you and I, they're names that we can't say. We can't even imagine a person to go with this name because we don't know anybody who has that name in our world. But God knew each of these people for their whole life. Sometimes we fail and we subtly accept the idea that God has only really spoken to or known a few heroes of our faith. But that's not true. Each of these people was a part of God's family, adopted by his grace, born into his covenant people in Israel. They mattered to God, and that should communicate to us that all people matter to God people whose names we know, and those that we don't. Second, the names of many people in the Bible remind us that the way that we experience God today is the same as how they experienced God. The names that parents chose for their children demonstrates to us the experiences that they had with Yahweh. Take, for example, a man in the Old Testament named Shaul. We saw his name in this genealogy. His name means prayers have been answered. Eleazar, his name means God has aided us. Elzaphon, his name means God has treasured us. Elkanah, his name means God has created. And Jochebed, Moses' mother, her name means God's glory. So even in reading these genealogies, if we're willing to take the time to sort of get out our archaeologist shovel and hammer, we can chip away at history, at the culture gap between us and the Hebrew people, and we can see that God has revealed these things about himself in all of history. 
God was not angry in the Old Testament, and then he became nice when he came as Jesus. He answered prayers, aided his people, treasured his people, created good things, and life was about his glory, even in the Old Testament. And testimony of that comes out as we understand the names of the people in this genealogy. And then finally, the reason that this genealogy is important is because this is God's family. God chose these people. He chose to adopt them to make them his own. He picked a barren woman and her 100-year-old husband, Abraham, to begin this process, to build a nation of people that would be his family tree. Listed in this genealogy is Aaron's wife, Elisheba. She's the daughter of a man named Aminadab, and she's the sister of a person named Nishan. This happens in verse 23 of this genealogy. If you were to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, verse 4, you would see that Aminadab and Nishan are also in the genealogy of Jesus. So under the surface of what's happening in the Exodus, and frankly almost imperceptible to you and I, God is always working in the Old Testament toward the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. He does this by preserving the ancestors of Jesus and by maintaining a direct chain of parents and children between Jesus and Adam, the first man. Part of the argument of the author of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is a new and better Adam who can do what Adam cannot. But laced into that argument is the idea that it takes, it requires a descendant of Adam, the first man, to undo what that man did and to pay for that man's sin and rebellion against God. Now to dig down into the purpose of this specific genealogy in Exodus 6, what Moses is doing is providing sort of a proof of authentic authentication. In the same way that you and I are expected to show an ID if we're going to buy alcohol or if we're going to board an airplane, this genealogy is Moses and Aaron pulling their driver's license out of their wallet and showing it to the people of Israel. Not only in their current context, where frankly the people of Israel are doubting God and probably questioning Moses and Aaron because it seems to them that God has failed them because Pharaoh's response to God's call of freedom was just to make their lives worse, but also for people who are reading this in the future. By the time Moses writes down the book of Exodus, he's a very old man, and his intention is to preserve the narrative movement of what it felt like to go on this journey with God. And so I think it's very upfront and honest of him to include that it's kind of this implied frustration on the part of the Israelite people. This need to be shown that this man who walks out of the desert and claims to be Moses is really who he says he is. Now, you and I don't struggle with that. Baked into our understanding of Moses is that he can't be an imposter, right? That, that he has to be who he says he is because we know the whole story. But the people in the story are living it as it happens, day by day, and they don't know for sure. I think it's really exciting to God's people initially when Moses arrives home because they think that this is it, right? God's going to deliver them overnight. Things are going to get better right away. But now that Israel doubts Moses, they doubt his identity as well. Some of these people may remember Moses from when he was a boy. Growing up in Pharaoh's court, they may recall that Moses talked like and dressed like and lived like an Egyptian man. Maybe now they think he's working as a spy. Maybe they think he's there to just instigate and stir up rebellion in the Israelite people so that Pharaoh finally can justify this war, this genocide that he wants to exercise on the Israelites to kill all of them and be done with them for good. Verses 14 through 30 of Exodus chapter 6 are intended to answer those doubts, to calm those fears, and to dismiss those accusations. And Moses, being the real deal, who he says he is, the prophet of God, this is important because the showdown between God and Pharaoh will begin in chapter 7. God will step out of his corner of the ring swinging and he will land his first blow on the wickedness of Egypt in plague number one, turning the water of the Nile into blood. So church, I want to say thanks to you for taking the time to do this. This is all very experimental for us. 
We don't know what we're doing. Uh, we want this to serve you. We're giving time and energy to it in the hopes that it will be a tool to help you understand God's word better and to see the unbroken narrative of God's redemptive history in all of the Bible. If you like this format, if you think that this is something that we could do more often, then please let me know. Reach out to me or another one of our elders or a staff member. All of our contact information is available on the leadership page at truenorthalaska.com. Uh, if you don't want to mess with that, you can always send an email to info at truenorthalaska.com. We have some ideas about how we could do something like this weekly. Many weeks, we probably would do what I did today and provide you with some supplemental insight into parts of scripture that we frankly don't have time to get to, especially as we work our way expositionally through entire books of the Bible. But we could do staff interviews. This would be a great way for you to hear testimony, how God has saved people in the church, a chance for different ministry leaders to discuss things that are coming up and maybe preemptively answer some of the questions that you might have. Um, or just a chance for me and the elders to take questions from you, the congregation. Questions about doctrine, theology, practice, philosophy. Uh, we would love to do that as well. So um, let me know. At the very least, we're going to do this again a few more times through the book of Exodus, just because we have to move at a pace where this book doesn't take us three or four years to finish. Uh, but we would consider doing something like this weekly if it would be a help to you. That's what we want. So I love you, church. Thanks for your time. And uh, I will see you very soon, God willing.